Officials in Japan are warning there could be strong aftershocks after yesterday's series of earthquakes that killed at least 48 people. It's Tuesday, January 2nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, as the country's war with Hamas rages on, Israel's Supreme Court strikes down a controversial plan from Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to overhaul the judiciary system. Plus, Philadelphia swears in a new mayor today. She'll be only the fifth black woman to run one of the country's largest cities. Also this hour. You know, every day you just wake up and it's just another crime, and, and that's all I did. And I loved it. I did indeed love it, I have to say. We hear from the author of a new book on the history of the American Mafia, a former mobster himself. And the world's population is now over 8 billion people. So what does that mean for our future? Sunny today in the 40s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. In Japan, rescue teams on the western coast are combing rubble for survivors after yesterday's series of powerful earthquakes and tsunami waves. Aftershocks continue today. NPR's Anthony Kuhn says at least 48 people have died and thousands of others have been forced to flee their homes. They have uh, taken in tens of thousands of people at evacuation centers. They have mobilized the military to provide relief and rescue. Three prefectures near the epicenter have applied a disaster relief law, which uh, ensures that they will get the help they need. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reporting. Meanwhile, a Japanese Coast Guard plane involved in a fiery crash at Tokyo's Haneda Airport was carrying relief supplies for earthquake victims. Officials say a passenger jet may have collided with the Coast Guard plane on the runway. Japan Airlines says all 379 people aboard the passenger jet escaped, but Japanese media report five crew members on the military plane have died. Russia launched another large missile attack on Ukraine before dawn today. NPR's Alyssa Nadworny reports Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, has been hit. In Kyiv, we woke up to the sound of drones and then hypersonic missiles. Ukraine's air defenses were working. According to the military administration in Kyiv, more than 70 missiles were intercepted. But several areas in the region sustained damages, including residential buildings, warehouses, and a church. The air raid alert sounded for about six hours. The attack follows a long holiday weekend of aerial attacks, including one barrage on Friday, the largest since the war began. In that attack, nearly every city in Ukraine was targeted, while this latest attack was more focused on the two biggest cities, Kyiv and Kharkiv. Parts of the capital were without power and water, and emergency crews were working to put out fires and rescue those caught in the debris. Alyssa Nadworny, NPR News, Kyiv. The first presidential primary of this year will be held on January 23rd in New Hampshire. It's a little more than a week after the Iowa caucuses are held. But as NPR's Tamara Keith reports on the Democratic side, the New Hampshire primary is unusual. President Biden and the Democratic National Committee wanted South Carolina to have the first primary in 2024. But New Hampshire has a law that says its primary must be the first in the nation. So it is proceeding as planned. The state's delegates won't count at the Democratic convention and any candidate running there faces sanctions from the party. How it shakes out is there are 21 Democratic candidates on the ballot, and none of them is named Joe Biden. Now, though, the state's Democratic establishment is rallying to persuade voters to write in Biden. The Biden campaign is steering clear of the effort. Tamara Keith, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
Authorities in South Korea say that the leader of the country's opposition party has been stabbed in the neck. A South Korean news agency says Lee Jae-myung was hospitalized for emergency surgery. There is no word on his condition. The man who apparently attacked him was immediately arrested. Police say they are investigating to find a motive. Birth control pills and condoms are the most widely used forms of contraception in the U.S. That is according to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. As NPR's Ping Huang reports, the popularity of different methods has shifted. More than 99 percent of women who have sex with men have used some form of contraception to prevent pregnancy. A new survey from the CDC also finds that almost 90 percent have tried a reversible chemical method, such as a pill, a patch, a ring, or an intrauterine device, or IUD. Use of condoms and birth control pills is slightly higher today than it was 10 years ago, and the use of IUDs has tripled in the past decade. More than one in five sexually active women has tried one. The report also found that around 30 percent of women who previously used an IUD had switched to other methods. The same goes for the pill, mostly because they did not like the side effects. Ping Huang, NPR News. Somebody has won the lucrative Powerball. The Powerball lottery says the winning ticket was sold in Michigan, and the jackpot was more than $842 million. It is the fifth largest Powerball jackpot won and the tenth largest jackpot ever in the U.S. This is NPR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Boston's new city council president says tackling affordable housing, public health, and safety are among her top priorities. At-large councillor Ruth Z. Louisjean was unanimously elected to the position by her colleagues yesterday. She's the first Haitian-American elected to the post. Louisjean says she wants to make Boston a more equitable place for all residents, including historically marginalized communities. We can address historic inequities and continue to bring everyone along. I'm excited for what's to come for our city and believe that our collective work together can transform our beloved city into one where every person feels honored, safe, housed, and healthy. Louisiane replaces Ed Flynn as council president. He did not run for re-election. A number of cities will inaugurate new mayors today. In Haverhill, Melinda Barrett will become the first woman to serve as mayor there. Erin Joyce will also make history today as Braintree's first woman mayor. And in Peabody, Mayor Edward Betancourt will be sworn in for his sixth term. Municipal water departments across Massachusetts are working to identify lead drinking water pipes. As Nancy Cohn reports, they must meet an October deadline set by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Water departments are conducting the inventory in a number of ways, by reviewing and digitizing paper records, surveying the service lines, and sometimes asking property owners to assist. Jamie Bartek with the Springfield Water and Sewer Commission says it's in the final stages of wrapping up its inventory. We have offered to this last portion of customers the option to send in a picture of the service lines because most of those pictures can provide enough information, but if we can't identify it from the picture, will then schedule a physical inspection. Bartek says the Springfield Commission has already documented and removed any lead lines they identified years ago. 
For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. The Southeastern Regional Transit Authority is now free for riders. Bus routes on that system will be fare-free through the end of June. Routes on the SRTA run through New Bedford, Fall River, and a number of South Coast communities. The pilot program is sponsored by a grant from the State Department of Transportation. It's 7.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, playing in Boston this March. Written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan, including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. The Bruins will be in Columbus tonight to skate with the Blue Jackets. The Celtics are in Oklahoma City to play the Thunder. Sunny today, temperatures will be near 40, clear overnight in the 20s, sunny tomorrow and in the mid-40s. It's 25 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Deloitte. Advancing the future takes more than a business angle or a technology angle. It takes both. Learn more at Deloitte.com slash U.S. slash Engineering Advantage. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. It's been a difficult start to the new year in Japan as a passenger jet collided with a Coast Guard plane at Haneda Airport in Tokyo on Tuesday, killing five on the Coast Guard plane. And this comes after a powerful earthquake on New Year's Day caused the deaths of 48 people and cut power to tens of thousands. In a few minutes, we're going to hear how rescuers are trying to reach people affected by the earthquake. But first, we go to Israel, where the country's Supreme Court says the government cannot limit the court's power after all. By a narrow majority, the court struck down a law that was designed to curtail the court's own authority. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition passed a law last year. The effort united his right-wing government but divided Israeli society at large. It was the reason for massive protests in the months before the start of the war against Hamas. NPR's Daniel Estrin is in Tel Aviv now to tell us more about this. Daniel, good morning. Good morning, Michelle. So would you just start by reminding us about what this law was all about? Yeah, it was the number one focus of the right-wing government when it came to power in Israel a year ago. And the idea was that uh, the government wanted to strip the Supreme Court of some of its powers. This is the most right-wing religious nationalist government in Israel's history. And it saw the Supreme Court as too left-wing, too protective of Palestinian rights, and said the government should be the one to, uh, to rule. Let the elected officials rule accusing the court of too much interference. And and this attempt to overhaul the judiciary sparked historic protests in Israel. Uh, Hundreds of thousands of people in the streets, demonstrators accusing the government of weakening Israel's democracy. But the government passed this law anyway this summer. It stripped the court of one of its powers to overturn government appointments. And why did the court strike it down? What, What grounds did it give for this? The court says that this law was a, quote, severe and unprecedented harm to the core character of Israel as a democratic country and said the government does not have omnipotent powers. Uh, This is a landmark ruling in Israel. It's the first time the Supreme Court has overturned the equivalent of a constitutional amendment. And it is a big blow to Netanyahu and to his right wing allies because this judicial overhaul was the number one main agenda of the government. And and is there any way in which this this decision might play into Israel's handling of the war in Gaza? 
Well, the Israeli government now, we hear officials, they're not very happy with this ruling, but they suggest that they're not going to do anything further to overhaul the judiciary while the country is at war. Uh, They recognize it's too divisive of an issue at this time of war, but it does add fuel to what we're hearing as a growing discontent in Israel about the war, about the government's role in this catastrophic situation that Israel's facing. Israeli defense officials in the months leading up to the war had warned publicly that Israel's regional enemies saw how the country was torn apart over this judicial overhaul debate and that enemies were identifying this as a moment of weakness to attack Israel. And indeed, Hamas attacked on October 7th. The military spokesman yesterday said that was likely one of the reasons Hamas chose this moment to attack. And there are also implications, Michelle, about the day after the war. Uh, Analysts say that uh, the government, you hear officials in the government talking about all kinds of policy proposals for what they want to see in Gaza, things that the Supreme Court might determine to be unreasonable. And now that they've overturned this law, they will be able to weigh in. That is NPR's Daniel Estrin speaking to us from Tel Aviv. Daniel, thank you so much. You're welcome. Now let's report on that New Year's Day earthquake in Japan. It was a magnitude 7.6 quake along Japan's western coast, and the death toll is up to at least 48. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports. The quake struck Monday shortly before dusk. Prime Minister Fumio Kishida said police, firefighters, and military personnel worked through the night to rescue residents trapped in collapsed buildings. Saving disaster victims' lives is a race against time, he told reporters before chairing an emergency government meeting. As Tuesday dawned, Japanese media helicopters flew over Wajima, a city near the quake's epicenter in Ishikawa Prefecture on the country's west coast. A swath of mostly wooden homes in a centuries-old market area could be seen from the air still smoldering after burning through the night. Residents began to head home from evacuation centers in the morning as teams worked to restore damaged utilities and transportation infrastructure. Prime Minister Kishida said getting responders and equipment into areas near the epicenter was difficult. Many people are working tirelessly to secure routes to deliver heavy machinery, he said. They're working hard to clear broken roads and checking port safety to establish sea transport routes. Japan's government lifted tsunami warnings for most of the country's west coast. They were the first such warnings since a magnitude 9 quake hit Japan's east coast in 2011, killing nearly 20,000 people and triggering a nuclear disaster. Several nuclear plants near Monday's quake's epicenter were inspected, but nothing abnormal was found. It's not clear whether this quake reveals anything about bigger quakes that experts believe could hit Japan in the coming decades. But seismic activity continues to rattle the area near the epicenter, with over 100 aftershocks so far. Prime Minister Kishida said residents need to watch out for magnitude 7 or bigger aftershocks in the coming days. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. 
It's a new year, but a familiar fight is returning to Washington. The White House will resume talks with congressional Republicans on funding Ukraine's war effort, and there are signs that the White House may need to give up some political ground to get it, specifically on immigration. GOP lawmakers are proposing a tougher standard for asylum claims. Earlier, our co-host A. Martinez spoke to Kenji Kizuka about this. He is the director of asylum policy for the International Rescue Committee. Kizuka started by explaining what happens under the current process. Once an asylum seeker has told an officer they want to seek asylum, the officer can choose to do a couple of things. They could let that person go on to immigration court and present their asylum claim to a judge, or they might put them in what's called expedited removal, which is a kind of fast-track deportation. And if they are placed in that fast-track deportation, they're going to have to speak to an asylum officer to show that they have a strong chance that they're eligible for asylum in order to stay in the country and to be able to continue the asylum process. What qualifies them to think that they can qualify for asylum? So asylum isn't for everyone. It doesn't apply to every kind of issue that might push someone to leave their country. It's a form of protection for people who fear persecution based on their race, their religion, their ethnicity, because of their political opinions, or because they're part of a group that's being persecuted, like uh, based on their sexual orientation or gender. Okay, so now Senate Republicans are trying to change the standard, and they want asylum requests to go from a significant possibility of persecution to more likely than not. What's the difference between those two? So the current standard is called credible fear, and that means that a person has a significant possibility or a good chance to show that if they went to immigration court, they would be able to prove that they were eligible for asylum. The proposals that we're seeing in Congress would raise that standard and essentially require people to prove their entire asylum case in the initial screening interview. So the process of these initial screenings that were meant to ensure that people are not returned to danger would, in essence, flip and become the whole game that you have to show and prove your whole case in that initial screening instead of it being a gateway to the rest of the process. To have to prove everything, as you said, the whole game right there on the spot, it seems like that's an almost impossible standard to meet. For many people, the screening interview is already really difficult. Um, You're sitting in a little booth in a detention center talking to an officer on the other side of the country over the phone. There's an interpreter on the phone. You're not seeing anyone face to face to be able to explain what happened to you. And you're talking about the worst things that ever happened to you in your life having to share that you were raped or tortured, having to talk about parts of your identity um, that were causing you to be persecuted, that you were practicing your faith in secret or that you were being persecuted because of your sexual orientation. And so these interviews were already so high stakes and so emotionally difficult for people. Imagine on top of that, knowing that now in this interview, You basically have to prove your whole case right there, right on the spot, as soon as you arrive. The kind of pressure that puts on someone who's already been through so much is really hard to imagine. Should it be a higher standard than what's already in place to be granted asylum to the United States? The issue that Congress is really grappling with here is that they want to see fewer people arrive at the southern border. 
And that's not an issue about the asylum standard. The thought that changing this credible fear standard would see fewer people arrive to the United States is a mistake. It's not going to happen. When people's lives are on the line, they're going to flee and they're going to seek any opportunity that might save themselves and their family. And so these changes we're seeing proposed to the asylum standard aren't going to address the humanitarian issues we're seeing at the border, but they will result in people who have genuine fears of persecution being returned to the place where they're in danger. Kenji Kizuka with the International Rescue Committee. Kenji, thank you very much for explaining all this. Thanks so much for having me. This afternoon on All Things Considered, come on a journey to the National Music Museum. There you can track musical history from the world's oldest cello to one of Elvis's guitars. Ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we'll hear how Russia's war in Ukraine has changed the way European Union leaders are thinking about security threats and the costs and benefits of admitting new states as members. It's 720. I'm Robin Young. We'll take a look at what's in store for the global and U.S. economy in the year ahead. There's a lot of geopolitical tectonic plates that are shifting now. Add it all together and you just realize you're the metaphorical Alice and through the looking glass. She had to run to stay in place. Economist Diane Swank's hopes and worries next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. High temperatures near 40 today and it'll be sunny. Upper 20s tonight and it stays mostly clear. Highs may reach the mid-40s tomorrow. It'll be mostly sunny. It's 25 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Cy Sims Foundation. Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at CySimsFoundation.org. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. From the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. You could fill a whole library with books about the mob and the history of the mafia. A brand new edition stands out thanks to the background of its author, Louis Ferrante. His new book is titled Borgata, Rise of Empire. I was a criminal from when I was 13. I hijacked my first truck when I was 17. I led a hijack and heist crew of armed robbers within the Gambino crime family. We would get tips on either a heist or a hijacking a truck coming out of the airport, say, for example, and we took it. You know, even safes, vaults, um, we did everything. And that's the only life I knew. You know, every day you just wake up and it's just another crime, and, and that's all I did. And I loved it. I did indeed love it, I have to say. 
Um, the FBI hunted me, and uh, to their credit, they got me. I was hit with racketeering indictments. I had three indictments. Um, I eventually did go to jail, and we were able to get a plea without cooperating. I never informed, I never cooperated, but um, so I took the 13 years and I docked a life sentence. And in that time, I began reading. I fell in love with books. I taught myself how to write and had an opportunity to reflect on all the things I had done. And obviously the regrets began to pile up, but until then, I loved it. So reading the book, I mean, it's volume one, and it seems like you really got down to basics, covering the first hundred years uh, from Sicily in the 1860s to the 1960s mob in the U.S. Why did you decide to start there? Every mafia movie, documentary, and book that I've seen or read, they never get deep into the, the origins of the mafia. They just sort of glaze over it and say, well, it began with feudalism. Uh, and then there's a word or two on the subject, and they move on to the, the gory parts, which is quick reading, good casual entertainment for people. So I dug deep, and I spent over a year just researching and studying where it may have come from. And I did confirm that it did start with feudalism in Sicily, and I was able to make comparisons that people never did between the mafia and feudal society, between a lord of a manor and his vassals being identical to the relationship between a mafia don and his soldiers. And the reason why it was so powerful in Sicily, it boils down to family life. The, the family structure in Sicily, as Jean-Jacques Rousseau said, the family unit is the strongest government in the world. And each family was its own sort of entity. An extended family gave the patriarch a lot of power. And I think that was the key to Sicilian bonding. And then as they point out, uh, Mark Block, who's a feudal historian, he said um, they were able in feudal times to have extended families who they considered blood, even though they were non-blood relations. And that's how the families grew bigger and bigger and more powerful. And what is a mafia? It's a mafia family. And it's basically just an extension. The Gambinos were a perfect example of how one family unit became this giant extended family, i.e. the Gambino crime family. So then how did it evolve in America? Was it simply just a case like, like we think it is where Italian immigrants just kind of came over and wanted to protect themselves in a brand new world? Part of it is exactly that. Um, the reason why they left Sicily was a lot of the mafiosos were considered criminals by the new government after the unification of Italy. Before that, they were sort of like revolutionaries. They were people who defended the people. And then suddenly they were called criminals. So a lot of them, they were becoming fugitives and heading to the United States and making a new life for themselves here. And a lot of them just came during the, the massive immigrant waves from Sicily and southern Italy. And as they came here, a lot of them, like you said, they just banded together. There was a lot of discrimination in the United States against Italians. And a lot of them banded together and said, hey, look, if we're going to survive this ordeal, we're going to have to stick together. But there were a lot of hardworking Italians. I do point that out throughout the book that had nothing to do with the mafia. And a lot of times they suffered because of things the mafia did. Was there a moment, an event, something early on in the history of the mafia in the United States where it cemented power, at least, or at least it gave the mafia a sense like, hey, we're here to stay, we've got some juice, and America and whoever else has got to deal with us. Yes, I would say it's during uh, Prohibition. When alcohol was outlawed 
that was a key moment because the public was against that and the public wanted alcohol. They had the closest knit underworld group, the Italian mafia, and they were able to deliver alcohol to the people who desperately wanted it. And they weren't seen anymore as these animals who were killing people in the street. They were seen as just people supplying the public with a demand. And because of all the people they were able to corrupt throughout the prohibition era, the politicians they once had, the judges they once had, they were able to continue those corrupt relationships post-prohibition after it was repealed. You know, they just kept running with it from there and until they controlled political machines across the United States and metropolitan areas everywhere. You know, back in the early 1990s, I was sucked into the saga of John Gotti. And around that time, the movies Goodfellas, Casino, A Bronx Tale came out. It felt like <laughs> the Italian mafia was just ubiquitous with America, just another slice of American culture. <laughs> exactly. What's the biggest myth or misconception that most people have about the mafia? A lot of people do think it's glamorous, given the movies and television shows, but it, it's brutal. There are a lot of people who get killed uh, for no reason at all but greed, deceit, it's ambition, and people die for nothing every day. One more thing, Lou. What do current mafia members or past mafia members or people, you know, that you've known in the mafia, what do they think about what you've written down? You know, when I write, I have to be careful. I don't want to uncover anything new that might send somebody to prison. That would bother them, obviously. But so far, they've been fine with it. They know that I never cooperated. I had every opportunity to snitch, and I refused. I faced the rest of my life in prison. I was in a maximum security penitentiary when I approached the bosses and underbosses who were with me, and I said to them, hey, look, if I never get out of here, if I have to leave in a pine box, I will. You know, I'll die in prison. I made this decision. I'm here. I'm not blaming anybody but myself. But if I can get out of here, I would like to go on my own. And they all said, sure. You know, with all the people snitching on them, they were happy to see somebody requesting an honorable discharge. Yeah. And that's basically how I left the mob. So you can get an honorable discharge from the mob. No blood in, blood out. It used to be. Not anymore. And they've been fine with me ever since. Um, mm. So I was in Staten Island last month. And I bumped into a lot of guys, uh, many of them whom are active. You know, I kept it short, hello and goodbye, big hug and a kiss, and we kept moving. You know, and I, I'm careful not to say anything that would really, really upset them. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I do see people now. I mean, I, I bump into people all yeah. the time, and they're fine with me. That's Lou Ferrante, author of a new nonfiction trilogy about the mob. Volume 1 is out now. It's titled Borgata, Rise of Empire, A History of the American Mafia. Lou, thanks a lot. Thank you so much, A. Appreciate it. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, a preview of some of 2024's most anticipated new video games. It's 7.29. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Five Japanese Coast Guard members are dead, and another is hospitalized after their aircraft collided with a passenger jet at Tokyo's main airport today. The BBC's Aranjana Tawari reports all 379 passengers and crew on the commercial flight were able to safely evacuate. Japan Airlines passenger plane coming in to land at a runway at Haneda Airport and as it was landing it seemed to 
collide with something and create a big explosion and then it continued down the runway and it was still on fire before coming to a stop. The BBC's Aranjana Tawari reporting. State legislatures will get back to work this month with many set to tackle issues that have been stalled on Capitol Hill. Journalist Reed Wilson says regulating artificial intelligence is likely to top the agenda. I think this year is going to be mostly about studying government's role in AI policy, but the common thread in the dozens of conversations that we've had with lawmakers across the country about this is that the states feel the need to act because they don't trust Congress to get its act in gear. The Senate has been holding a series of forums focusing on regulating the use of artificial intelligence, but legislation has yet to emerge from those sessions. This is NPR. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. We'll know later today what order names will appear on the Massachusetts presidential primary ballot. The Secretary of State's office will hold a drawing to select that order. The Republican ballot will have seven candidates, including Donald Trump, Nikki Haley, and Ron DeSantis. There will be three Democrats, President Biden, Dean Phillips, and Marianne Williamson. State climate grants are helping 15 farmers install solar panels this year. Reducing farms' carbon emissions helps Massachusetts achieve its climate goals. WBUR's Paula Mora spoke with a farmer who says the panels will lower her electric bills and fulfill a longtime dream. Julia Sweet wants her vegetable and herbs farm in Rehoboth to be climate friendly. She recently bought an electric car for the catering side of her business. Her next dream was to install solar panels, and they are expensive, so she applied for two grants. She got a $30,000 state grant and a federal grant to cover the costs. We've always wanted to install solar here. The difficulty for us was the cost of the solar, and because it's an old farmhouse, we need to do some renovations. The state awarded almost $2 million to over 50 projects, including installing irrigation and upgrades to more efficient machinery. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. Researchers on Cape Cod are using satellite imagery in their work to restore the region's ponds. The images are being studied to link the color of ponds and their health. Christy Senatori is executive director of the Cape Cod Commission. I think what we are doing here on the Cape is unique, but we are kind of learning from other areas across the country that have done similar analyses. But we do have a very unique geography. We have a unique number of ponds in such a small geography as well. The group Freshwater Initiative has been studying satellite imagery for about a quarter of the Cape's nearly 900 ponds and lakes. A reminder for Green Line riders, tomorrow morning your commute gets a bit more complicated. There will be no train service between Kenmore Square and North Station. On the B branch, the closure extends to Babcock Street. And on the E branch, it extends to Heath Street. The closure will run through January 12th. Then the line will be shut down for another two weeks beginning on the 16th. It's 734. WBUR supporters include the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Informed communities, essential for healthy democracy. KF.org.
The Celtics will try to extend their six-game winning streak tonight. They'll be in Oklahoma City to play the Thunder. The Bruins are working on a three-game winning streak of their own. They'll visit the Columbus Blue Jackets tonight. Clear skies today will have highs near 40. Still mostly clear tonight as temperatures fall to the upper 20s. Just a few clouds tomorrow. Highs will be in the mid-40s. It's 25 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at WallaceFoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Philadelphia is set to make history today at the inauguration of its new mayor. Sherelle Parker will be the city's first female mayor and the fourth black woman run one of America's largest cities. WHYY reporter Carmen Russell Sluchansky joins us now from Philadelphia. Carmen, tell us more about Sherelle Parker. Well, Parker came from a modest background, a fact that she made a central part of her campaign. In fact, here she is in her victory speech in November. I didn't hide from it because I wouldn't allow anybody else to attempt to weaponize my humble beginnings against me. So before they could do it, I made sure that I told you that I was born to a single teenage mother, that I was raised by my grandparents, that my grandmother collected welfare, and subsidized food to take care of me. At 17, Parker won a speech contest which caught the attention of a Philadelphia council member who took her on as an intern. After that, she briefly taught high school in New Jersey and uh, returned to Philadelphia politics going back to work for the city council. 10 years later, she became the youngest black woman ever elected to the state legislature. Then in 2015, Parker ran for the city council and won. How is Philadelphia reacting to having its first female mayor? Well, there's certainly a lot of excitement. Philadelphia is a majority black city and the voter turnout was high in November. And the uh, new administration is expecting about 3,500 people at the inauguration today, which will fill up the Metropolitan Opera House where it's being held. You know, I spoke to uh, Parker back in May after she won the Democratic primary and asked her about going against the more progressive wing of her party by pledging to hire hundreds of police officers and also bringing back so-called constitutional stop and frisk. Uh, Is she still committed to that as some of her top priorities? You know, at the top of the list is gun violence, uh, the top of the list of her priorities. Philadelphia is one of America's biggest cities, and it has growing rates of gun violence, homicides, and other violent crimes. So to counter this, Parker promised to add 300 police officers to a force of 6,000. And while she did call for an end to stop and frisk, she's also looking to replace them with stops that require police to have more evidence of a crime. It is a legal tool. A crime must be committed or they must know that it is going to be committed in order for them to have the just cause and reasonable suspicion to stop someone. They are called Terry stops. So critics have said that this proposal isn't really that far from what police do now with stop and frisk. It really all comes down to how the police force implements the new policy. Parker will also need to weigh in on a controversial $1.5 billion proposal to build a new basketball stadium for the 76ers, currently slated to go in Chinatown, where residents are worried that their neighborhood's going to change a lot if that happens. Parker has yet to endorse or reject the project. 
That's WHYY's Carmen Russell Sluchansky. Uh, Carmen, thanks. Thank you. European leaders have been asking how long they can really rely on the United States. Germany's defense minister has called upon European countries to do more for their own security in years to come. Former President Trump was notably close with Russia's leader and has shifted his party's views of Ukraine and European security. Our co-host, Leila Fadel, spoke with Dan Baer, who is director of the Europe program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. It's certainly the case that many in Europe are very focused on the 2024 elections here and concerns about what a possible second Trump administration would mean for European security, given the former president's statements about withdrawing from NATO or reducing U.S. commitments to Europe. I think more pressingly, though, is the ongoing war, Russia's war against Ukraine, which has made clear that European security is is not a done deal. So let's break that down. Let's first talk about Russia and Ukraine. When we talk about this major security concern through the views of Europe, what does that look like? Well, um, the reminder that there is a major land war, the largest land war since World War II in Europe, is a reminder that war is not done. I think more pressingly is the fact that there's a deep understanding that is emerging that if Russia is allowed to win in Ukraine, that won't be the end of the story. So Germany and others are recognizing that it's not what anybody wants to have an antagonistic relationship with Russia, Mm -hmm. but they need to settle in for the long haul of recognizing that Russia will remain a major security threat to Europe for the foreseeable future. How does that change if there's another Trump term? Another Trump term will accelerate the need for the development of the European industrial base. And in some ways, part of the defense minister's comments were an intra-European sign, I guess, because the new government in Poland, headed by Donald Tusk, presents an opportunity. There's been a acrimonious relationship between Poland and Germany in recent years, and this is an opportunity. And I think the minister was sending a signal to Poland about the willingness to work together. And if the Weimar Triangle, which is Poland, France, and Germany can work together on developing European security, they can be a powerful force. I guess I want to get more focused, though, on Congress in the U.S. and the fact that aid for Ukraine is up in the air, that it's been delayed. I mean, what message has that sent to Europe? Well, it sends a message to Europe uh, in that the United States can't be relied upon to do what is in the United States' interest as well as in European interest. It also sends a message to the rest of the world. And I think that can't be underestimated. It's not only a failure that will uh, make it more difficult for Ukraine to defend itself against Russian aggression. It's also a failure that makes the United States look weaker in the world, makes any potential partners question the value of our partnership. And so it is something that sets the United States back in our ability to build the kinds of partnerships that we need in the 21st century. Why haven't European countries invested in defense and security capabilities in recent years? I mean, why are they in this position of playing catch up? I think largely because of optimism about the progress of the European project. The European Union, the relative lack of conflict since World War II, has given European powers a sense of complacency. Um, There was a longstanding belief in Germany that Russia could be a partner, not an adversary, and that the major strategic threat, therefore, that was obvious was not so much of a threat. And obviously that has been proven wrong. So I think what we're seeing now is a need to renew a commitment to hard security and Mm. to investing in defense. But there's also something kind of terrifying in what you just said, like a loss of faith that the threats are over, a possibility of another world war. Well, I mean, I think you don't want the major powers of the world constantly jockeying for an upper hand because that's the kind of situation that has in the past produced 
misunderstandings or conflagrations that result in large-scale wars. Mm -hmm. But I think there's also a way forward here. As the U.S. power relatively declines with the rise of other powers, there is a vacuum that is created. And Europe and other partners need to step up and fill that vacuum so that there are responsible security actors who are looking toward peace rather than looking toward the kind of contests and competition that result in conflict. Dan Baer is the Senior Vice President for Policy Research and Director of the Europe Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Thank you so much, Dan. Thanks for having me. This is NPR News. The news from Israel and Gaza continues to change quickly. Stay with 90.9 WBUR for the politics, the personal stories, and the history you need to understand this moment. Keep listening. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, the Israeli military is pulling thousands of troops out of Gaza. A former U.S. diplomat on Middle East affairs weighs in on what that may mean for the fighting there. Sunny and near 40 today, mostly clear in upper 20s tonight, mostly sunny in mid-40s tomorrow. It's 25 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, and proud sponsor of The Heart of New England, the new IMAX film now showing at the Museum of Science, Boston. People in Massachusetts are increasingly pessimistic about their financial outlooks going into 2024. That's according to Springfield-based Mass Mutual's latest consumer survey. It finds respondents are concerned about interest rate hikes and the housing market. As WBUR Stevie Chapman reports, younger people in the state are particularly worried about federal student loan payments. More than 75% of those surveyed with student loans say repaying that debt is having a negative impact on their day-to-day financial health. Amanda Wallace with MassMutual says nearly half of those respondents are very concerned they may default on their student loans. So what they really have to focus on is how to reduce their spending to balance out their debt, whether that's cutting back on how much you go out to eat or self-care or on everyday spending. Those are the most common changes people need to make to help make those student loan payments. Wallace says defaulting on loans has negative implications on a person's retirement and credit score. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman. A popular comfort food spot in Quincy plans to close. The Fat Cat will shut down next week. Owners say rising costs and the lasting impact of the pandemic are forcing them to close the restaurant. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. 
Early this year, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is expected to officially set limits on six so-called forever chemicals, known as PFAS, in drinking water. One community that has seen elevated levels of two of these forever chemicals is Tampa, Florida. And now the city says it will likely be the first in the country to bring in a new technology that will make it easier to filter out these PFAS. Joining us now to tell us more about the city's plans is Jessica Mazaros with WUSF in Tampa. Jessica, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So could you just start by reminding us what PFAS chemicals are? Sure. So PFAS actually stands for a large family of toxic man-made chemical compounds. They've been used in consumer and industry products since the 1940s, from clothing, upholstery and carpet, to microwave popcorn bags, pizza boxes, and even candy wrappers. They've been linked to negative health effects for people. Exposure to certain levels can impact the body's ability to fight infections and lead to reproductive effects or an increased risk of cancer. At this point, they are everywhere, so they end up in the water supply. Here's Sarah Burns with Tampa's water department. We are passive receivers, so we don't generate a single drop of PFAS. It just comes to us in our source water. The utility is actually part of a lawsuit against manufacturers of PFAS like 3M and DuPont to recover the cost of removal. So tell us about this big new technology that Tampa is bringing in. Yeah, the city of Tampa is getting the technology from the Netherlands. It's called SIX, or Suspended Ion Exchange. It removes things like decaying vegetation from the water. And the city says to filter out PFAS, you have to first remove the organic matter. Tampa's water department would be the first in the country to have this system. The other two are in Europe. And the plan for this one is to filter 140 million gallons a day. Can I ask the why is this needed? Is Tampa's water that bad? Well, it's not that the water is bad. It's just that the city gets its drinking water from the Hillsborough River, which is collected along with all sorts of organic matter from nature. Now, Tampa did recently find slightly elevated levels of two of six PFAS in its drinking water supplies. The EPA proposed limit is at four parts per trillion for these two, and the highest the city found in its water was just over six. This sounds expensive. How is this going to be paid for? Well, Tampa is still in the designing phase and the system won't be completed until about 2032. But Tampa's more than 700,000 water customers are already paying for it. It's expected to cost $200 million and it's part of a larger infrastructure improvement plan that the city council already approved. So their water bills will be increasing every October until 2040. That said, city officials do point out that the technology will actually save the department nearly a million and a half dollars a year. And how? How will it save that money? Well, installing this SICK system means they'll use less chemicals and filters. Sarah Burns said if they weren't using this, they'd have to otherwise go through double the filters. Plus, getting the organic matter out of the water early on in the treatment process actually improves all the other stages that follow, so it makes the system a lot more efficient. That's Jessica Mazaros with WUSF in Tampa. Jessica, thank you so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. 
Coming up at 8.20 on WBWAR's Morning Edition, you'll hear about a new NPR investigation that's raising questions about the number of inmate deaths that federal prisons classify as natural. It's 7.50. I'm Robin Young. We'll take a look at what's in store for the global and U.S. economy in the year ahead. There's a lot of geopolitical tectonic plates that are shifting now. Add it all together and you just realize you're the metaphorical Alice and through the looking glass. She had to run to stay in place. Economist Diane Swank's hopes and worries next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. In Japan, officials are warning of more aftershocks after yesterday's earthquakes that killed at least 48 people. In Israel, the Supreme Court there has struck down a controversial plan from Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that would limit the power of judges in the country. And in South Korea, a leading political opposition leader is recovering after being stabbed in the neck. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Clear skies today. Temperatures will rise to near 40. Those fall to the upper 20s tonight, and skies will stay mostly clear. Then mostly sunny tomorrow and in the mid-40s. It's 25 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. All right, look, a lot of people, actor and television host Mario Lopez, found himself on TikTok. All right, today we're in Pocoima at Sabora La Mexicana, and it means Mexican flavor. Yeah, he was out eating food, and then he started trending on X, which got him a little worried that he might have said something that he shouldn't have. But it turns out it wasn't anything that he said as much as how he said it. People don't think I'm Mexican. Is that a trick? With a name like Mario Lopez. You know what? They've been thinking I'm everything from Italian to Hawaiian, but I'm not. (laughs) It's the weirdest thing. Lopez was born in Chula Vista in Southern California. That's north of the U.S. border with Mexico. His parents are both from Mexico. And while these facts are right there in his Wikipedia page, it seemed to be a revelation for lots of people when Lopez, what, came out as Mexican. Mario, why was it important to make it clear that you indeed have Mexican heritage? The whole thing was so bizarre and weird. I mean, I have a Z in my last name. And like the thing about social media is it allows you to kind of take a peek behind the curtain and it's unfiltered and you represent yourself how you really are. At least with me, that's the case. I mean, I can't talk the way I do to like my buddies and my uh, guys from the neighborhood when I'm hosting my radio show or Access Hollywood. I think everyone has like their customer service voice. (laughs) to kind of uh, slip into. But when I'm not, then I'm with my buddies and I'm a little more slang and it's a little more uh, relaxed and uh, probably my ethnicity comes out a little more. Were you perplexed, angry, annoyed, all of the above over all this? I thought it was just funny and kind of silly. I didn't understand it, but I guess people weren't used to seeing me sort of just be myself and with my buddies. But again, that's one of the, I think the cool things about social media, you kind of put out there your real self, kind of raw. Yeah, and, and there's a term for that called code switching. I mean, is that something that that you've consciously done over the years to kind of just stay employed in Hollywood? Or is that something that kind of just comes out depending on the situation when it calls for it? 
Yeah, I, I got hip to the term code switching. And um, yeah, you, you try to be a little bit more buttoned up in certain scenarios. And especially when I'm on TV and and representing NBC Universal and we're on the news division, then you, you, you got to be a little bit more buttoned up and polished. In researching the reaction to this, Mario, I went down a TikTok rabbit hole on you. And there was one clip in particular that kind of struck me. It, it's where your your Latinness, so to speak, was questioned. Let's let's hear that clip real quick. This man is whitewashed. And he's literally only been doing this Mexican thing for like three or four years. I mean, what does it make you feel when you hear something like that? <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> My parents are from uh, Culiacán, Sinaloa, Mexico. I was born in Chula Vista, border town, around all Latinos. But, you know, people can think of like what they want. What does bother me is I don't, you don't have to sound like an ignorant paisa or somebody that's uh, just uh, across the border to to claim your Mexican Latin card. You can uh, sound above average intelligence and be able to hold a conversation and you talk differently. I talk differently around my mom than I do my buddies. I talk differently at work than I do when I'm around my guys at the gym. It's, you just talk differently. And um has nothing to do with uh, my culture, which I proudly represent all the time. You're one of the stars of an NBC sitcom called Saved by the Bell. There's a whole generation of people that love that show. And and on that show, your character's name was A.C. Slater, which, if I recall, yeah. was not intended for a Latino to play. But you had a great audition and you got the role. And I'm wondering, Mario, if if that could have been maybe the starting point for why so many people maybe think that your Latinidad, so to speak, was somehow lost. I was uh, fortunate enough for that role and a bunch of other roles, the casting director's sort of casted blindly. And I think the role of the guy was supposed to be Italian and it was great. And uh, I thought it was cool. You shouldn't be just sort of necessarily typecast just because of uh, an ethnicity. And I'm, you know, 100% Mexican. So I thought that was cool. But going back to that guy's point, you know, again, social media, it's sort of like your own little reality show, right? So then if you're not playing a character, you're not hosting, it's just you. And so then that's why people are maybe tripping out a little bit. If NBC like sat you down, Mario, and said, "Hey, you know what? We we just want you to be you now. I mean, you, you just just be you, like you are in these videos." That is um, me. That is me. I wouldn't feel comfortable on Access Hollywood though. I like, wouldn't feel yeah. comfortable like that because I wouldn't want to represent myself like that on TV. Oh, okay. I wouldn't want my kids. I'd watch that. If I were my my son, I'd be like, "Hey, keep it buttoned up." <laughs> All right, that's Mario Lopez, host of Access Hollywood, and yes, a confirmed Mexican. Mario, thanks a lot for uh, joining us. <laughs> you got it, man. Appreciate it. We have some news about the year that just ended. The world's population grew by more than 75 million people last year. Now, that sounds like a lot, but the pace of growth is slowing. We know that the global population is likely to even out in the coming decades and then potentially even to start to decline. Rachel Franklin at Newcastle University in England studies trends among the 8 billion people now sharing this planet. She sees hints of our future in a country that has an aging population and a declining birth rate. What's happening in Japan is what's going to happen in lots of countries around the world in the coming decades. At least for a few decades, we'll have a lot of older people supported by sort of a narrower foundation of those who are in the labor force. As countries become more prosperous, their birth rates tend to drop. Many countries already produce fewer than the 2.1 babies that we generally say are required in order to maintain a population size. 
Now, in theory, a smaller population could be easier to manage. Fewer people might consume fewer resources and contribute less to climate change. But we can't really count on slower population growth to take care of that problem. So we could have fewer people in the world, but if they're living standards increase at the pace that our living standards did for the past 100 years, we're still going to see a huge environmental impact. William Fry is a demographer at the Brookings Institution. That's a think tank. He says that in the U.S., immigration will determine future population trends. Just from a demographic standpoint, this country is very much dependent on immigration in the future to have sustainable growth. So in a time of declining birth rates, it matters a lot where people prefer to move. It's hard to know what fertility preferences may look like in a couple of decades. We don't know if younger generations may prefer to move more, and we don't know if we'll decide to increase the numbers of people that we admit into this country. And for this new year that is just getting started, the U.S. population is expected to grow by one person about every 24 seconds. That is taking into account birth, deaths, and international migration. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Lots of sun today. We'll have temperatures in the upper 30s. Skies stay mostly clear tonight, and it'll fall to the upper 20s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny in mid-40s. It's 26 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israel's top court has struck down an attempt by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government to limit the power of judges in the country. It's Tuesday, January 2nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the decision by Israel's Supreme Court comes at what may be a key moment in the country's war with Hamas as thousands of Israeli troops are being pulled out of Gaza. Also this hour, a new NPR investigation finds that federal prisons classify most inmate deaths as natural, leading to less scrutiny. The party line right now is that all the natural causes deaths are unavoidable, and we know that to be simply untrue. And librarians are fighting back after being fired for refusing to ban books. What we're seeing is that these terminations are backfiring within the communities where they happen. Sunny and near 40 today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Authorities in Japan say at least 48 people have now been killed in a swarm of earthquakes that started yesterday. These hit Japan's western coast, triggering tsunami waves. There have been scores of aftershocks, some of them strong. Thousands of people remain out of their homes across several prefectures. Teams are still looking for survivors in the rubble of collapsed buildings. Meanwhile, one of two airports serving Tokyo is closed. A passenger jet caught fire on the runway. 
NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Seoul, the Japanese Transport Ministry is investigating. Japan Airlines says all 379 passengers and crew made it off the plane before it was engulfed by flames on the runway at Haneda Airport. The flight had just landed after flying from the airport serving northern Japan's Sapporo City during a busy holiday travel season. The JAL flight may have collided with a Coast Guard plane, which was carrying relief supplies for victims of an earthquake that struck off the country's west coast on Monday, according to JAL and the Coast Guard. State broadcaster NHK reports that five crew members aboard the Coast Guard plane were killed, and the plane's pilot is in critical condition. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. Members of the Israeli government are upset with the decision by the country's Supreme Court yesterday. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports the Israeli Supreme Court struck down a law that was intended to limit the power of Israel's judiciary. The Israeli government now, we hear officials, they're not very happy with this ruling, but they suggest that they're not going to do anything further to overhaul the judiciary while the country is at war. They recognize it's too divisive of an issue at this time of war, but it does add fuel to what we're hearing as a growing discontent in Israel about the war, about the government's role in uh, in this catastrophic situation that Israel's facing. NPR's Daniel Estrin reporting. In the past few days, buses from Texas and Louisiana have dropped off hundreds of migrants in New Jersey. They were traveling to New York City. Harrison Malkin reports this comes after New York City Mayor Eric Adams imposed an order requiring at least 32 hours prior notice for buses with migrants arriving in his city. The mayor of Secaucus, New Jersey, Michael Ginelli, says the, quote, bus operators are finding a way to thwart the requirements of Mayor Adams' executive order. Ginelli says it's an unexpected consequence of Adams' decision. Since Saturday, 13 buses carrying about 450 migrants have arrived in New Jersey cities, including Jersey City, Secaucus, Fanwood, Edison, and Trenton. For NPR News, I'm Harrison Malkin. On Wall Street, stock futures are lower in pre-market trading. Dow futures are down more than 230 points. This is NPR. The FBI and police in Rochester, New York, are investigating a deadly crash that happened outside of a concert venue not long after midnight on New Year's Day. A show was letting out. Police say a Ford SUV hit a Mitsubishi Outlander, sending both vehicles into a group of pedestrians in the crosswalk and into two other vehicles. Two people in the Mitsubishi were killed. Three more pedestrians were hurt. Police in Rochester say the Ford SUV was carrying several gas canisters. South Africans are paying tribute to award-winning photojournalist Peter Magubane. He died yesterday at the age of 91. Kate Bartlett reports Magubane was best known for documenting the horror of the apartheid regime. During his decades capturing violence and injustice under white minority rule, Magubane shot iconic images of the Sharpeville massacre, the trial of anti-apartheid activist Nelson Mandela, and the Soweto student uprising. As punishment for photographing one protest, the journalist was himself imprisoned and held in solitary confinement for more than a year and a half. After Mandela's release from jail in 1990, he was the former president's official photographer for a few years. For NPR News, I'm Kate Bartlett in Johannesburg. South Korean news agency Yonhap says the leader of the South Korean opposition party is recovering in the hospital after being attacked. Police say Lee Jae-myung was stabbed in the neck by a man as he spoke with reporters. The suspect was arrested. 
The South Korean news report says he is being charged with attempted murder. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Boston City Council has a new leader. She's vowing to make the city more inclusive for all its residents. More now from WBUR's Ariel Gray. City Councilor-at-Large Ruth C. Louis-Jean was elected president by her fellow councilors during a New Year's Day session, replacing South Boston Councilor Ed Flynn. She was first elected to the council in 2021 and had signaled in the fall that she had the support to become president. She says she plans to continue to address issues like affordable housing and public health and safety. Under my leadership, we will continue to center equity in everything we do here in the city of Boston, knowing that the task is a daunting one, given our historical failures to show up for those who our governments have marginalized. Louis Jean is the first Haitian American elected to the position. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Ariel Gray. Masks are now required for employees at the UMass Memorial Medical Center. Patients and visitors are strongly encouraged to wear masks as well. It's the latest healthcare facility in the state to reinstate masking requirements. This follows a statewide increase in respiratory illnesses, including COVID and RSV. Next steps are starting to take shape for cleaning up a 6,000-acre plume of forever chemicals stemming from Joint Base Cape Cod. Past fire training activities at the base led to PFAS contaminating groundwater in Falmouth and Mashpee. Exposure to PFAS has been linked to higher risk for some cancers. Rose Forbes is the remediation program manager at the base. She's proposed installing new extraction wells as an interim solution to help until a final cleanup plan is in place. These new extraction wells will capture the PFAS, the high concentrations of PFAS that's coming out of the fire training area, and will transfer that water up to the Sandwich Road treatment plant where the PFAS will be removed. The earliest that work on the new wells could start would be September, but that's only if the plan gets funded. Former longtime state lawmaker Richard Volk has died. Volk served 10 terms in the Massachusetts House, representing his hometown of Chelsea as well as Charlestown. During his tenure, he chaired the House Ways and Means Committee and served as majority leader. His sister tells the Boston Globe he died Sunday. Volk was 76 years old. It's 808. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. The Bruins will play their first game of the new year tonight. They visit the Columbus Blue Jackets. The Celtics are also on the road tonight. They'll play the Oklahoma City Thunder. Sunny today, temperatures will be near 40, clear overnight in the 20s, sunny tomorrow and in the mid-40s. It's 26 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Israel says that some of its troops are backing out of Gaza. The Israeli military describes a shift in tactics after months of intensive bombardment and a ground operation. So what's going on? We have analysis this morning from Dennis Ross, who has been an influential U.S. diplomat under multiple presidents, works for a think tank, the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, and is currently in Tel Aviv. Welcome back to the program. Good to be with you. Thank you. What do you think the Israelis are doing? Well, I think what we're seeing is a movement gradually into a different phase of the conflict. From the Israeli standpoint, 
they put four divisions, which is an awful lot of forces into a relatively small area, but they were actually going after what is a very deep military infrastructure and industrial base that Hamas has built up. It's not just the fact that they have tunnels, it's also that they produce their own rockets, their own mortars, their own drones, their own ammunition. This is a really profound infrastructure that was developed over time. And it took a lot of forces, I think, to begin to take on that infrastructure. Now, what we're seeing is success, really, in the northern part of Gaza, so that Hamas has pretty much lost control there. Mm -hmm. Because of that, the Israelis are shrinking the number of forces they have in Gaza because, in a sense, they're, they're concentrating more on other areas, but those other areas don't require the kind of large presence, number one. Number two, that kind of a large presence also tends to create problems for the Israelis. They have, if you think about it, they, they have 29 killed by friendly fire. Some of that comes from a large number of forces in a very small space. Now, it's possible to see this as Israel's response to U.S. advice, given that the Biden administration would like to see a more targeted campaign with fewer civilian casualties, less indiscriminate bombing, to use a word that President Biden used. Is any of that happening here? I do think that's part of it. Uh, I, all along, I think the Israelis have been listening to the United States, but I think they were, they were taking into account what they felt their own military, military plans required. But as they listened to advice from the Biden administration, uh, one, they took it seriously. Two, they also began to think about, okay, how can we demonstrate that we're being responsive uh, to the administration? Uh, and three, they went through their own process of looking at what seems to be working effectively, what might be working less effectively. So, so in a lot of ways, there was a kind of iterative process within Israel, but I think also with the administration as well. Now, Israeli officials set a goal at the beginning of this war or after the Hamas attack on October 7th. The goal was to eliminate Hamas, to destroy Hamas. Palestinians that I've spoken with, outside analysts that we've had on this program have warned that's too big a goal because it's too big a movement. There's too much popular support for Hamas among Palestinians. Do you think Israeli officials are recognizing they can't strike a crushing blow, that this will be a long, long and slow effort with an indeterminate outcome? I think there's kind of a mix here. I still think at the political level, partly because you, one has to be here to fully understand the nature of the trauma. Everybody in Israel knows someone who is kidnapped or killed in the South on October 7th, sure. or they know someone who is fighting in Gaza today, uh, and they know people there who've been killed. Everybody is moved by this, the, the shock of it and the trauma of it is quite prominent. So politically, you have leaders who are saying, we're going to eliminate them. Practically speaking, when you talk to people in the military, they're much more focused on the task at hand, which is how do you ensure that Hamas doesn't have the means to reconstitute itself, doesn't have the means to ever threaten Israel again, and ensure that it loses command and control to the point where politically it loses control in Gaza. That doesn't mean eliminating every Hamas. It doesn't mean the idea of Hamas is gone. It doesn't mean even the group is necessarily gone. But it means as a, a, an organization with coherence and with the ability to control Gaza, that it loses. That, I think, actually is an achievable goal. That is very much what I think the military is focused on. They're also beginning to focus on what happens the day after you get to that point. 
but it's not going to be easy to get to that point, and I think it's going to take some time. We just got about 15 seconds, but do the Israelis know yet who they want to run Gaza on that day after? I think they're focused right now very much on kind of the civil administration that has been there even under the Palestinian Authority and Hamas and maybe some of the prominent families from the past. But that's kind of an intermediate phase before you get to what would be what I would call an interim administration. Dennis Ross, longtime U.S. envoy, now at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Thanks so much. My pleasure. For more analysis and differing views, you can visit npr.org slash updates. The Department of Justice ended a controversial program nearly two years ago called the China Initiative, which targeted mostly ethnic Chinese academics and their links to China. The program was stopped after criticism of racial profiling. Now, a proposed House spending bill wants to bring the initiative back. NPR's Emily Fang has this report. Gong Chen is a preeminent engineering professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and he says he is a changed man. I'm no longer the same. I can never go back to the same as I was before. That's because in 2021, the FBI investigated him for past affiliations with Chinese institutions, affiliations that were previously encouraged by academia. It was an important case under the Justice Department's China Initiative, an effort to prosecute Chinese espionage in the U.S. Ultimately, the charges against him were dismissed. Chin had done nothing wrong, but the damage has been lasting on him and his wife. I very often woke up in her cry during the night because she was dreaming, and then in, in her dream she was crying. So I understand her fear. And though absolved, Chin has abandoned award-winning research in semiconductor materials because that's now a point of U.S.-China tech competition, and he feels it's too sensitive. Why should I get into this? If I check a wrong box uh, somewhere, made a mistake, I could be accused. Why should I risk this? About 90% of the more than 70 cases prosecuted under the initiative involved people who were ethnically Chinese. Just about a quarter were convicted and usually for much lesser charges. In February 2022, the Department of Justice ended the China initiative, citing in part racial and ethnic bias, though the FBI says it still has more than 2,000 cases related to China. The DOJ did not respond to a request for comment. And now a proposed House spending bill wants to restart the initiative. The China initiative has fundamentally harmed the U.S. competitiveness. The biggest competition is on talents. And that really deterred a lot of talents coming to the U.S. Asian American rights groups are also alarmed. Here's Gisela Perez Kusakawa, director at the Asian American Scholar Forum. How are we going to be tackling disclosures moving forward in a way where there isn't a disproportionate impact on Asian American scholars or a chilling effect within the Asian American and scholar community? These are tough questions. John Yang, president of Asian Americans Advancing Justice, would like to see more training of U.S. law enforcement and employers when pursuing China-related cases. Training with respect to the Asian American community and our contacts, our natural contacts with friends and family in China and how that might present itself. And learning to differentiate between normal contact with loved ones or colleagues in China and something more pernicious. 
That inability to distinguish is what got a New York police officer named Bai Madaja Angwang in trouble. In September 2020, he was arrested and charged in New York with being an unregistered foreign agent for China. Then I can see five, six FBI SWAT team members jump out their car with rifles pointing to my face. And I still remember until this day, uh, one of the agents asked me, do you speak English? He did, because he'd moved to the U.S. as a 17-year-old refugee from his native Tibet. And he'd polished his English as a U.S. Marine. But an attempt to return to Tibet and see his family after years away was misinterpreted. And his case was grouped under the China Initiative. I was still wrongfully accused for something I didn't do. Last year, the charges against him were dropped for a complete lack of evidence. By that point, Ang Wan had spent months in solitary confinement in jail, and he's still on suspended leave with pay. But despite all the heartache, working for the NYPD is still Ang Wan's dream job. It's my American dream. Imagine immigrant coming from another country. You are able to become a police officer in the biggest city in U.S. and served people. That's if he can get his job back. When reached for comment, the NYPD only said the disciplinary proceedings against him were ongoing. And with the China initiative potentially swinging back into action, Ang Wang and Chen at MIT fear there could be more cases like theirs. Emily Fang, NPR News. The new year began with big games in college football. Sorry, Michelle, I went into my sportscaster voice there for a moment. Michigan won the Rose Bowl and will advance to the national championship game. They beat Alabama in overtime, and it was awesome. 27 to 20, as described on ESPN. Michigan makes a stand and comes up with a milestone playoff victory. Well, since I cannot do a sports announcer voice, I will simply say that Michigan coach Jim Harbaugh told ESPN it was the team's togetherness that put the Wolverines over the top. We're so together, so connected, and uh, we were going to overcome anything that was inside the stadium. The other semifinal was also dramatic. Washington needed a last-second defensive stand to beat the Texas Longhorns 37-31. to Ewers lobs it up, and it is incomplete! The winning quarterback is Michael Penix, Jr. I said it before the season started, you know, our goal was to win a uh, national championship. And now we got the opportunity, we got the shot to do it. Washington and Michigan will play in the national championship game next Monday night in Houston. And this is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, librarians in at least three states who were fired after refusing to ban books are appealing to the Federal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. It's 820. I'm Robin Young. We'll take a look at what's in store for the global and U.S. economy in the year ahead. There's a lot of geopolitical tectonic plates that are shifting now. Add it all together and you just realize you're the metaphorical Alice and through the looking glass. She had to run to stay in place. Economist Diane Swank's hopes and worries next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. High temperatures near 40 today and it'll be sunny. Upper 20s tonight and it stays mostly clear. Highs may reach the mid-40s tomorrow. It'll be mostly sunny. It's 26 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance. 
Progressive is looking for individuals in a variety of career fields who want to help build a culture of inclusiveness. More information, including application, at Progressive.com careers. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Any unnatural death in a federal prison requires investigation. I mean, like a homicide or a suicide or an accident. But most deaths in federal prisons are classified as natural deaths, which often means less scrutiny, leaving inmates' families with questions. NPR's Tears of Christopher reports. When Kesha Jackson first heard that something was wrong with her husband, John, she called Forest City Federal Prison, where he was housed. The phone just rang, 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 or it kept going to busy, busy, busy. Six hours later, she still had no answers. Jackson started getting calls from other inmates. What the prisoners were saying to me is that he had been in a special housing unit for three days, banging on the door because he was going in and out of consciousness and he couldn't breathe. And then when the officer came in, he dragged John out into the hallway and tried to give him CPR. John Jackson was pronounced dead soon after. The medical examiner ruled it a natural death. When his medical records came home after he passed away, I saw that it was MRSA. MRSA is a staph infection caused by a type of dangerous drug-resistant bacteria. But it is treatable. John had contracted it after he was moved to the Forest City Federal Prison in 2017. According to his medical records, he still had the infection over two years later. Saying that it's a natural death could sometimes be misleading. I believe that having proper medical treatment could have possibly saved his life. Previous reporting by NPR exposed inadequate health care in federal prisons around the country. According to Bureau of Prison Records we obtained, almost three-quarters of all federal prison deaths have been pronounced natural since 2009. The CDC says natural deaths happen either solely or almost entirely because of disease or old age. But 70% of the inmates who died in federal prison were under the age of 65. After speaking to some of the families of these inmates, NPR found that issues such as medical neglect, poor prison conditions, and a lack of resources were swept under the rug. Meanwhile, family members were left with little information about their loved one's death. The prison doesn't have to contact family members unless it's a matter of life and death. Well, he's dead. So where was the contact? What I'm getting now, I should have been contacted as soon as there was an incident. Homer Venters is a federal court monitor of jail and prison health care. He calls deaths like Jackson's jail attributable. Things that happen behind bars significantly contributed to the outcome of death, despite the fact that a medical examiner ultimately says it was a natural cause of death. He says that calling a death natural often does not provide the full picture. So we have this very old, antiquated idea that 
the coroner or medical examiner, when they say a death was from natural causes, that that should somehow determine whether or not people got what they needed behind bars. We found issues at prisons around the country. For instance, an inmate in the Springfield, Missouri Medical Center waited weeks to be treated for bleeding in his digestive tract. He died soon after hospitalization. An inmate in Arkansas complained of stomach pain for a year and a half before his death. His family was not provided with any more details. Another inmate in Missouri died of respiratory failure and his death was pronounced natural. But according to medical examiner records obtained by NPR, his death was later treated as a homicide, but the family was not provided that information and got his autopsy five years later. The BOP is not required to conduct autopsies for natural deaths, but there is something called a mortality review that's done every time an inmate dies. These reviews are supposed to be a reflection of one, how the death was handled, and two, if it was preventable. This information, however, is not shared with the public or even the families. His roommate contacted me on Facebook on that Sunday morning and said he had collapsed That's Celia Wilson. Her brother Lenny had been serving time in the same federal prison as John Jackson. He was on his morning run when he fell over. We didn't hear from BOP until Tuesday. The prison case manager told Wilson there was nothing to worry about. Her brother's lawyer, Allison Guernsey, found different information in her brother's medical records. Celia would say they think that there are signs of life and maybe vitals are getting better, And then we would ask for those medical records, and they wouldn't actually say that. Guernsey is a clinical professor and attorney at the University of Iowa Law Clinic. She had to file public records requests every day for updates on Lenny Wilson's health after the collapse. It was quite difficult to get someone from the Bureau of Prisons to actually tell us what was going on. Two weeks after his collapse, Celia Wilson's brother died. His death was pronounced natural. But the family had no explanation for why an otherwise healthy 61-year-old man just fell over and died. Her brother's cellmate claimed that he had not received help for almost 10 minutes after his collapse. Since his death in June, the family still has not received the mortality review. Here's Homer Venters again. We have left health care and decisions about what's adequate health care to security people. The party line right now is that all the natural causes deaths are unavoidable, and we know that to be simply untrue. The BOP declined NPR's request for an interview, but said that all deaths are investigated thoroughly. NPR also requested mortality review reports for every inmate who died in BOP custody since 2009, but has yet to receive them. Family members like Celia Wilson still want answers. It makes no sense to me, which is why it's so frustrating. There is so much they could have done. It's unfathomable. Tirza Christopher, NPR News.
This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 8.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. Tampa may be the first American city to get the technology to filter out forever chemicals known as PFAS from its water. It's 8.29. The new year means new resolutions. Maybe for you that means hitting the gym or going for a run each day. Take us with you when you go. Catch your favorite WBUR and NPR shows live or rewind and play them back with the WBUR app. Download it for free before you head out. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Search and rescue operations are continuing in western Japan after a powerful earthquake struck the region on Monday. The BBC's Gene McKenzie reports the magnitude 7.5 quake forced thousands of people from their homes. We are traveling towards the epicenter and we keep coming across these areas of destruction where homes have been partially destroyed or some of them completely collapsed. Now they tend to be these older homes that are made of wood, the houses that haven't been built to withstand these sort of earthquakes. The BBC's Jean McKenzie reporting. The Environmental Protection Agency is expected to set limits on six so-called forever chemicals in drinking water, known as PFAS. Jessica Mazaros from member station WUSF reports the city of Tampa has seen elevated levels of those toxins. The city gets its drinking water from the Hillsborough River, which is collected along with all sorts of organic matter from nature. Now, Tampa did recently find slightly elevated levels of two of six PFAS in its drinking water supplies. The EPA proposed limit is at four parts per trillion for these two, and the highest the city found in its water was just over six. That's Jessica Mazaros reporting. This is NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. It's been one year since the state's fair share amendment, also known as the millionaire's tax, took effect. State revenue officials estimate the new surtax generated more than one and a half billion dollars in its first year. But critics like Paul Diego Craney of the Massachusetts Fiscal Alliance argue the tax is driving people out of the state. It is incredibly foolish policy that drives out wealth punishes people for being successful, while a lot of other states around the country are trying to attract those same people that we are pushing out of our state. Supporters point out the new money is budgeted for things like universal free meals in public schools and repairs to the MBTA. The state is expanding a program to keep young people out of the justice system. The Massachusetts Youth Diversion Program will work with minors charged with low-level crimes on the Cape and Bristol County. State officials tell the Boston Globe that intervening in these cases helps keep young people from reoffending. The program began last year in the greater Boston and Worcester areas. 
One state lawmaker wants to make high-speed chases a felony. State Representative Christopher Markey of Dartmouth is behind the bill. He says right now the only charges that can be brought against someone involved in a high-speed chase is failing to stop for a police officer or, quote, operating to endanger. Markey says as a former prosecutor, he was horrified to see police dash camera footage of chases distracted driver going 50 miles an hour down a little side street. He then loses control and then ends up house or hitting somebody else. Or So that's the reason why I, I really thought about it. It was always something that was bothered me. Markey says his bill would define a high-speed chase as at least 20 miles an hour over the speed limit for at least a mile. Penalties would be a $1,000 fine and could involve a five-year prison term. North Atlantic right whales are returning to Massachusetts waters. That's after many of the critically endangered whales spent the fall in waters off the coast of Florida and Georgia, where females gave birth. Eve Zukoff reports. The Center for Coastal Studies spotted four whales by plane southeast of Nantucket. It was a welcome sight for the Provincetown-based team that surveyed the waters seven times in recent weeks before a single right whale sighting. On the same day, the fifth right whale calf of the season was spotted with its mother off the coast of Florida. Stormy Mayo, who oversees the right whale ecology program at the center, said the sightings made him hopeful. If the past is any indicator, my hope with five whales mourned in December is that that's an indication that we're going to see a a bumper crop this year. It would be a big win for the population of roughly 350 North Atlantic right whales that remain. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Eve Zuckoff. The Celtics will try to extend their six-game winning streak tonight. They'll visit the Oklahoma City Thunder. Meantime, the Bruins will try to make it four wins in a row. They'll skate with the Blue Jackets tonight in Columbus. Clear skies today will have highs near 40, still mostly clear tonight as temperatures fall to the upper 20s. Just a few clouds tomorrow. Highs will be in the mid-40s. It's 26 degrees in Boston. You're with WBWAR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeet. And I'm Michelle Martin. We told you a lot about what the U.S. Congress did not do last year, but state legislatures are a very different story, and this year their agendas are packed. As lawmakers head back to work in the next couple of weeks, many of them have big plans to tackle issues that federal lawmakers have been dragging their feet on. Reed Wilson is here to give us a preview of the year ahead in state legislation. He is the editor-in-chief of Pluribus News. That's a news service that focuses on state-level policymaking and he is with us on the line from Arizona. Good morning. Good morning. So a big topic of debate on the federal level right now has been artificial intelligence. How are state legislators talking about this? 
Well, artificial intelligence policy is top of mind in just about every state capital in the country. Lawmakers are thinking about how to promote what could be this massive economic engine in their own backyards, and they're also considering ways to set up guardrails to protect against things like discrimination in algorithms. I think this year is going to be mostly about studying government's role in AI policy, but the common thread in the dozens of conversations that we've had with lawmakers across the country about this is that the states feel the need to act because they don't trust Congress to get its act in gear. We're going to see a lot of efforts to regulate social media companies in different ways this year, all in services of protecting kids online. You know, eight states passed digital privacy laws in 2023, and lots more will be taking up bills that either require parental permission for kids to access social media sites or to ban addictive features in social media apps. Okay, speaking of of addiction, something we've reported on extensively is the opioid crisis, and states have been on the front lines of that for years. Do you see more legislation on addiction and health care coming up? Yeah, this is huge in the states. Uh, we're going to see two distinct trends in healthcare this year. First of all, states are trying to find a solution to this massive opioid crisis. Blue states are considering proposals like creating safe injection sites or legalizing drug paraphernalia like fentanyl test strips. Red states are also moving to increase penalties on dealers who provide drugs that cause a user serious harm or death. The second big trend in healthcare is this never-ending effort to bring down costs. Some states are pressuring the Biden administration to approve permits to re-import prescription drugs from Canada. Some blue states are in the process of setting up panels that would be able to set payment limits on high-cost drugs. And what about climate change? You know, we saw a number of state leaders attending the climate change conference in Doha this year. Does that say something about what the states are interested in moving on? I think it does. More states move to require utility companies to transition to entirely renewable energy portfolios by 2040 or 2050. Big renewable projects like solar or wind farms require lots of space. So we're even seeing some states move to preempt local authority to block those projects as a way to speed construction. And, you know, Michelle, there's also a renewed interest in nuclear energy and after the development of what are called small modular reactors. These reactors, they're a lot smaller and higher tech than traditional nuclear reactors you might think of. And both red states and blue states are considering new plants that would eventually provide a lot of non-carbon energy to the grid. And before we let you go, and obviously this is a subject that requires you know a lot more time, but we saw the states really taking on a lot of these hot button what we would call maybe culture war issues like gender affirming care for minors, you know, abortion rights, things of that sort. Are we going to see more of that? I think we will. Most abortion rights and gender-affirming care bills have passed in the states where they're going to pass, so a lot of that is going to be an issue on the ballot box this year. But in conservative states especially, one of the areas where the culture war has flared up is over education. So I expect we'll see a lot more of that discussion coming this year. Reed Wilson is editor-in-chief of Pluribus News. Reed, thank you so much. Thank you. Let's talk a little more about culture wars. The American Library Association says challenges to books on their shelves are up sharply in recent years. In the cultural battle over what information should be publicly available, some librarians are losing their jobs. One fought back. Colorado Public Radio's Matt Bloom has her story. Brookie Parks started working in the teen section of a local public library in Erie, Colorado in 2019. The 49-year-old mom of two got to talk to kids every day and help them discover new books. I loved it. It was probably my dream job. 
As a part of her work, she launched an anti-racism workshop and what she called the Read Woke Book Club, focused on LGBTQ-themed books. Soon, the library district got complaints from two local parents about their titles, and managers canceled her workshop and club. Parks was shocked. And I said, well, I don't understand why we're going to rename an entire book club just because two members of our entire community don't like the word woke. That's the very definition of censorship. The library board also passed a new policy that discouraged, quote, controversial events. Parks pushed back in public meetings. Action, she said, led to the district firing her after more than two years on the job. And they said, we just feel like you're not taking responsibility for any of this. And so your services are no longer needed. The next month, she filed a discrimination complaint with the Federal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and Colorado State Civil Rights Commission. And she filed a lawsuit. But she hoped to prove her firing was discriminatory before taking her case to court. Her employer, the High Plains Library District, said they canceled Parks' programs to rework their titles because they promoted an agenda. Here's District Director Matthew Hort at a board meeting in December. We're not restricting, we're not censoring information. What we're doing is we're trying to present it in the way we can have a discussion. But after a year of investigating her case, Colorado's Civil Rights Commission ruled Parks' firing was illegal discrimination. And this fall, the library district settled Parks' lawsuit against them before it went to court for $250,000. Iris Halpern is her lawyer. It sends a message out that there are consequences, financial consequences, and we can put guardrails up against things like censorship and discrimination. Halpern is also representing librarians from Texas and Wyoming in similar cases. What we're seeing is these terminations are backfiring within the communities where they happen. The American Library Association recorded more than 700 attempts to ban books or censor library programming around racial or LGBTQ issues, the most on record. President Emily Drabinsky says Park settlement victory is likely the first of many legal challenges. This is a big win and it's an exciting one and it buoys the rest of us in the field, I think to learn about her fight and her win. For Parks, the victory came at a cost. She was unemployed for eight months and had to get help from an online fundraiser to pay her bills. And without that, I probably would have lost my house. She's now working again, this time at an academic library at the University of Denver. I know I, I sacrificed my dream job, but I can lay down and sleep at night knowing that I did the right thing. As a part of her legal settlement, a lot changed at her former library. Librarians now get a chance to veto program cancellations, and a new policy states inclusive and diverse programming is encouraged. For NPR News, I'm Matt Bloom. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report previews the upcoming tax filing season. For the first time, people in 12 states, including Massachusetts, are expected to be able to electronically file their returns directly to the IRS. Sunny and near 40 today, mostly clear in upper 20s tonight, mostly sunny in mid-40s tomorrow. It's 27 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Medical Center. Modeling a new kind of excellence in healthcare, built on clinical expertise and equity. Learn more about rewriting healthcare at bmc.org. 
All eyes are on interest rates this year when it comes to the state's real estate market. The Massachusetts Association of Realtors expects more buying and selling activity as rates are expected to come down. But WBWARS and Injor and Wemeka reports those who want to jump into the market may still face tough conditions. More sellers are expected to enter the real estate market if interest rates continue to dip, as many anticipate. That's good news for home buyers who have faced tough competition and high prices due to the lack of homes for sale. But Amy Wallach of the Massachusetts Association of Realtors says the market will still have challenges. Regardless of interest rates shifting or not, I think that we are still going to see the market to remain very consistent through the beginning of 2024 due to Demand still being high, availability of financing still being solid, and, you know, just inventory being low. Wallach says the state has a long way to go to create more housing. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. It's 845. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. And from Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. 2023 was a big year for video games. Will 2024 come anywhere close? Well, one big thing being talked about heading into the new year is the highly anticipated release of Final Fantasy VII Rebirth. Oof, I'm swept away. Millions watched the Game Awards in Los Angeles last month, and that's where the Final Fantasy VII theme song premiered with a live studio orchestra. Here to tell us what lies ahead for the industry in the new year is NPR's gaming lead, James Mastromarino. So, James, Final Fantasy VII came out nearly, what, three decades ago, and now it's coming back again? Yeah, that's right, and it's bigger and bolder than ever. It has top-of-the-line graphics, and it's because it's part of this growing trend of a lot of remade video games. But in Final Fantasy VII's case, this is basically a franchise within a massive franchise. Final Fantasy XVI just came out last year. Now this is the sequel to the first remake of the Final Fantasy VII game, which originally came out internationally in 1997. And unlike many remakes and reboots, it's also kind of a remix, taking characters that people love, like Cloud Strife and Tifa and Aerith and putting them in entirely new situations with a newly revamped story. So James, this is where I'm going to name drop because last year I got to speak to Nintendo game designer Shigeru Miyamoto, you know, the legend, the icon. (laughs) The company debuted uh, Super Nintendo World at Universal Studios. I got to talk to him after seeing that. And then I know the movie Super Mario Brothers, the movie made over, what, a billion dollars. So how is Nintendo following up on that success? Yeah, it's got a lot to capitalize on. It had two huge hits last year, The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom and Super Mario Brothers Wonder, which I hear you've been enjoying a lot I these bought days. one a few days ago. I haven't stopped playing it for three days. Yeah, and that's why the Nintendo Switch is still selling so well. It's got all of these 
first-party Nintendo titles that people love. But the big scuttlebutt out this year is that Nintendo is very likely to come up with a sequel to the Nintendo Switch, a new piece of hardware that can keep up with all the new games that are coming out because the Switch itself hasn't gotten a hardware update in over seven years. So we're expecting a new console by the end of the year. But again, that's not confirmed by the company yet. It's just our best guess. All right, I'll keep working on my skill set until then. So uh, what other games are going to be paying attention to in the coming months? Well, there's a new Prince of Persia game coming out this month. Elden Ring, the 2022 phenomenon, is getting an expansion. There's a Star Wars game called Outlaws and some smaller games that have really devoted followings. Hades 2 on Early Access. And maybe this will be the year that we finally get Hollow Knight Silksong, which is the follow-up to this cult classic that's also on the Switch, by the way. Now, one thing I, re I remember last year, there were a lot of layoffs in the gaming industry, what, 9,000 almost. Are developers worried about job security right now? Yeah, absolutely. Because even though a game can do extremely well, that doesn't mean that the company isn't going to find cuts that could affect your job. And unlike big entertainment like Hollywood, there's not really a strong union presence in the game industry. That's changing. And these layoffs are motivating a lot more organizing on that front. A new development, Microsoft acquiring Activision Blizzard King, the biggest acquisition in the gaming industry so far. But Microsoft, despite monopoly fears again striking that company, actually is a lot friendlier towards unions than the old company used to be. So stay tuned for developments there. That's NPR's James Mastromarino. Thanks, James. Thanks, A. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have more on the decision by Israel's Supreme Court to block an overhaul of the judicial system. Plus, the Mickey Mouse cartoon Steamboat Willie moves into the public domain. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. Sunbugsolar.com. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Former President Donald Trump is expected to challenge decisions to bar him from the ballot in Maine and Colorado as soon as today. One of Tokyo's main airports remains closed after two planes collided on the runway today, killing five people. Respiratory illnesses, including COVID-19, are surging across the U.S. as vaccination rates remain low nationwide. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com and Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Clear skies today. Temperatures will rise to near 40. Those fall to the upper 20s tonight, and skies will stay mostly clear. Then mostly sunny tomorrow and in the mid-40s. It's 27 degrees in Boston. It is the first work day of 2024, and for millions of Americans, that means a pay bump. 
Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance. Customers can simplify their insurance needs and protect what's important by bundling home and auto. Learn more about bundling at Progressive.com. And by C3 Generative AI. Verified traceable answers. Secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at C3.ai. I'm David Brancaccio. As of this week, the minimum wage is higher in nearly half the country, and companies are budgeting for more wage increases ahead. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with some details. And in fact, states have been passing their own minimum wage increases as the federal minimum wage remains stagnant. It's at $7.25 an hour. A lot of states in the South and the Rust Belt are still at that rate, but big contrast to places like California, where the new minimum wage is now $16 an hour. In New York State, it's up to $15 an hour. More than half the people getting raises today are in three states, New York, California, and Hawaii. That's according to a tally from the Economic Policy Institute. And among those getting raises, the Institute says more than half are women, 11% are black, and nearly 40% Latino. One in five are workers whose incomes were below the federal poverty line. That means they're making less than $15,000 a year. So these wage increases have a huge impact for those folks. And a lot of places have started to peg changes to their minimum wage to inflation. That's right, uh, including California, also Maine, Montana, Arizona. And again, these are about minimum wages. Employers, a lot of them are outpacing those minimum wage increases. Walmart, for instance, has set its starting wages between $14 and $19 an hour. According to the conference board, think tank companies expect to pay their employees about 4% more this year than they did last year, David. All right. Now, not to be that guy, but it is also a new tax year in 2024 here. The IRS is trying something new. Some taxpayers in 12 states will be able to electronically file their federal returns directly with the IRS, as opposed to using third parties. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes has more. To start, the pilot will be limited to people with relatively simple tax returns, says University of Texas accounting professor Lisa Simone. If you itemize your deductions, for example, it's not going to be an option for you because that adds a lot of complexity to your tax return. People who claim certain credits or have gig income are also not eligible. DeSimone says this new program comes after the Treasury Department found that very few eligible taxpayers were using the IRS's existing free file program, which relies on outside vendors. A lot of the companies that were supposed to be offering these products for free were directing taxpayers instead to their paid products. The IRS estimates making the program available to taxpayers on a broader scale could cost up to $249 million annually. Matthew Gardner is with the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. If that sounds like a lot, you know, to put this in context, Americans spend something like $14 billion a year on tax prep right now. And the idea here, he says, is to reduce both the money and time we all spend doing our taxes. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. The stock market opens for its first 2024 session in about half an hour here. Futures are pointing to a drop at the start. S&P futures now down seven tenths percent. I see NASDAQ futures down one percent. In other marketplace stories making headlines, the people negotiating the big golf merger missed their end of year deadline with talks extended. PGA Tour is based in Florida and Live Golf is based in Britain and Saudi owned. PGA is set to hold control of the combined firm's board of directors. U.S. antitrust authorities will likely review all of this. 
And wholesale property insurance rates are expected to go up by 50% this new year, with costs likely to be passed down to regular property owners. It's about the global cost of insuring catastrophes, from major storms amid climate change to earthquakes. Last year, wildfires in Hawaii and the Turkey-Syria quake contributed to $100 billion in global insurance losses. That's down slightly from 2022, but well above the old normal, according to industry estimates. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UiPath. More than 10,000 organizations use the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform to put AI to work. UiPath.com slash marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. And by Financially Inclined, a podcast from Marketplace is all about money lessons for living life your own way. Listen to the new season wherever you get your podcasts. With the new year comes new costs for medicines. Drug makers plan to raise prices on more than 500 drugs this month, according to the healthcare research firm 3Axis Advisors. Here's Marketplace's Kristen Schwab. There are only a few things certain in life. Death, taxes, and apparently increases to prescription drug prices at the beginning of the year. Antonio Chacha is president of 3Axis Advisors. So January is the hotbed of prescription drug pricing changes. Mostly because that's also when insurance plans turn over. Chacha expects prices to increase around 5% this month, which he says is typical. One could argue that if a drug manufacturer didn't take a price increase, that in essence it is a price cut because their prices are not keeping up with rates of inflation. Inflation is one factor drug makers note also worries about supply chains that cross the Middle East. But Stacey Dusetzina, a professor of health policy at Vanderbilt University, says drug pricing strategy is often opaque. These price increases can be pretty arbitrary. Uh, I think that's one thing that really frustrates the average person and the policymakers around drug price increases. It's one reason why there's been more regulation of drug pricing, including the 2022 Inflation Reduction Act, which capped how much drug makers can increase prices for people on Medicare. So now they're limited to increasing prices only at the rate of inflation. But that doesn't shield everyone else from rising costs. And everyone else includes health insurers, pharmacies, and you. Andrea Dukas is vice president of health policy at the Center for American Progress. So for an individual, it really is going to depend on what their um, insurance situation is, right? What their out-of-pocket expenses are, what their copay is. It means you won't really know how much these price increases will affect you until you get to the pharmacy counter. I'm Kristen Schwab for Marketplace. And as it is 2024, Californians, regardless of age or immigration status, can now qualify for Medi-Cal, California's version of the federal Medicaid program for people with lower incomes. Healthcare advocates say the program will save lives, and in the long run, it could save the state money. Critics say California now has a $68 billion budget deficit and can't afford this. It's Marketplace Morning Report. We're from APM, American Public Media. A reminder for Green Line riders, tomorrow morning your commute gets a bit more complicated. There will be no train service between Kenmore Square and North Station. On the B branch, the closure extends to Babcock Street. And on the E branch, it extends to Heath Street. The closure will run through January 12th.
Lots of sun today. We'll have temperatures in the upper 30s. Skies stay mostly clear tonight, and it'll fall to the upper 20s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny in mid-40s. It's 27 degrees in Boston. And the BBC News Hour is coming up next. I'm here and now host Deepa Fernandes, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.